Welcome to Docs in Orbit, where we feature conversations with independent creative documentary filmmakers from around the world. This is Christina Zachariades. In this episode, we're featuring a conversation with Allison Chorn about her film, The Plastic House, which is having its U.S. premiere October 6th to the 11th in the New Currents section of the New York Film Festival. Alison Chorn is a Cambodian-Australian filmmaker and multidisciplinary artist whose work explores themes of migrant displacement, trauma, and the repetition of memory. In her latest film, The Plastic House, she brings us a highly immersive work that takes place almost entirely inside and around her Cambodian family's dilapidated greenhouse in South Australia. It is there that she oversees inspiring regrowth, despite the sometimes harsh natural elements that surround her. Economical yet expansive, Chorn filters and displaces her fears about her parents' death and a precarious future onto an intensely moving narrative of ritual, physical labor, and isolation. I have to say, I saw this film at Visions de Real, where it premiered earlier this year and was moved by the way in which nature was depicted and felt that there was a strong ecological message around grief. And it's one of these films where it really allows the viewer space to bring in their own interpretation. And so I really love this conversation moderated by Zanre Reed because it brings in a whole other aspect of meaning and understanding to Alison Chorn's work that I would have otherwise missed. Uh, Zanre Reed moderates the discussion. Zanre is an interdisciplinary multi-platform storyteller and documentary filmmaker from Cape Town, South Africa. He holds a Master's of Arts in Documentary Film Directing from Doc Nomads, and is teaching audio documentary and photography at the University of Central Asia in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan. With an interest in documentary work that deals primarily with memory, childhood, and family narrative, Zanre is particularly interested in films that transform personal histories into public installations. So without further ado, here's the conversation. So, Alison, um, I read that you first started as a painter, actually, and that you've gravitated towards mediums like sculpting and photography and then eventually film. How do you think being this interdisciplinary artist enriches your visual approach to filmmaking? As you said, I started as a painter and I studied that for... Um, yeah, almost four years, and that's the thing I thought I was going to be and do. And I really enjoyed, you know, creating paintings in a very solitary way. But then I also wanted to explore other mediums, and as you mentioned, I, I kind of looked at sculpture, photography, and... I also experimented with film and I realised with film that I could use time to 
make something unfold over a period of time. That's something that I found really characteristic about the plastic house is that you have this colossal amount of time that you're sculpting. And I found it really interesting how you work with time in the film, like how you're working in your, in your parents' greenhouse. And it's a very slow, progressive, meditative process. You know, you're, you're filming, planting the beans and then the sprouting. And did the, the growth of the environment around you, did that sort of reflect your approach to actually the filmmaking process? That process definitely informed, you know, the structure of the film and that, that slow time that happens in the film. I think if you experience um, being in a greenhouse and having to tend to the plants, especially from the, ve- the, the very beginning, from planting them and then seeing them grow, it takes, you know, a lot of, a lot of time and patience. In the beginning of the film, when you very eloquently and very cinematically portray the death of your father in 2015 and your mother in 2016 I believe could you speak to a little bit about like this solitude that you were also working with like what's your intention for this and what were you trying to explore the solitude sort of reflects how I was working in the greenhouse because essentially it was only my parents and myself that were actually working in there. We, we never really had anyone else. And the sense of isolation I sort of constructed in the film to be almost more um, isolating by having my parents fictionally pass away. So I, sh- I should make that clear that that is the only really fictional element of the parents passing away. I was under the assumption that you were actually in mourning, like you were, this is actually a film about your mourning. Um, But I also sense that the, the, the lack of presence of your parents, is that something, I mean, in the film, they physically don't exist, but I'm curious what's behind this, like what's behind their absence I think their absence was a way for me to to find out what I would be left with, and I I I kind of feel their absence, you know, emotionally. Even though they're still here, I feel a disconnection with them. Maybe because they're were born in a different country, and we don't really have a very clear way of communicating to each other um it's it's like they can speak in broken english and i can speak in broken khmer but we can't really have a complex conversation like i'm having with you right now and so there's an emotional disconnection just even the 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 images the flashback memories that you see of the parents in the film, um, there's a sense of like wanting to 
um, connect with them, even the, though there's no, you know, words exchanged. But it's also in it's also in retrospect, like it's almost like a regret of not having done more. Ah, uh, I see. So it's sort of in the line of of a futuristic imagination in retrospect of the past and what that would look like. Yeah. That's really interesting. Have they seen this film? Yeah, my my mother has seen it and I'm not sure how much she understands it, but she said she liked it, which is the most you can get out of like a migrant parent. This whole idea of displacement is something that's very, very common for first and second generation immigrants. So your parents are from Cambodia originally. You grew up in Australia. You struggled to even have a complex conversation with your parents. All of this historical and contextual sort of background informs the landscape of the film itself. Yeah, I think there's also a desire to want more. You know, there's a yearning to want some kind of connection. Uh, Could you speak to me a little bit about the title of your film, The Plastic House? Yeah, so my parents always called the greenhouse the plastic house. Like, that's what they always called it. And so, you know, I naturally called it that as well. We we never referred it to the greenhouse. I think that speaks to the sense of materiality. That's also something I'm interested in looking at the material surfaces and textures. You know, there's a lot of these types of coverings, not just the plastic sheeting, but there's also the blanket. Um, You see the ritual of the putting on the shirt. Yeah, I'm just interested in those materials that seem to meant to protect you interesting so these materials are meant to protect us but whether that is um you know the plastic covering on your parents greenhouse or the cotton we clothe ourselves with or all these things we reach for to protect ourselves and you know keep chaos at bay but at the same time these elements are also made of plastic and synthetic fibers and is this in any chance by any chance like a criticism on the superficiality of what we have constructed as human beings in the name of protecting ourselves i mean i don't think i i wanted to criticize these kind of cheap materials um i think it's like a product of obviously a product of consumerism and those larger systems, but I think it's maybe also a cultural thing as well because my parents Mm -hmm. are very used to using maybe cheaper materials and bits of wood to construct things. It could be a a cultural thing as well. Interesting, because when I I saw the, the title, The Plastic House, 
and watching the film, which places such a huge emphasis on weather and the weather changes, I was curious whether The Plastic House was not a commentary on the narrative of global warming. Was that intentional or is that just something, I mean, an inter possible interpretation of your work? I, th I think that's a very good ob observation and it's something that I didn't specifically intend for. I think the film is more of a immediate physical experience of maybe mm -hmm. the effects of global warming and climate change and whether the weather becoming more intense yeah it's a very it's a very visceral depiction of actuality of the concrete of the sensory experience and all these potential narratives whether that be global warming or the loss of your parents or family trauma um i read that you use this example of how global warming is quite similar to the oppression of family trauma because we tend to oppress it and we oppress it to the point that until it sort of bubbles up and we can no longer oppress it and then it's too late um, and how these things run parallel. But at the same time, I also feel like all these interpretations are beautiful and wonderful but i think the true essence and the beauty of your construction is the on the level of the visceral is on the level of the concrete of the experiential almost the phenomenological where you are most interested in inviting the viewer into a space where they are welcomed to simply be there and observe as the figure which is a representation of you as that figure observes within the space of your family greenhouse yeah that's a very good way to put it yeah if we can speak a little bit about the the visual style which is quite interesting how you you sort of combined this low quality vhs camcorder footage i noticed especially when you were filming the weather and the chaos of the weather it sort of moved into this lower quality grungy chaotic sort of ca floating camera where the camera itself seemed like it was encapsulated in the center of the storm um, and how you juxtapose this with these beautiful cinematic still frames um, that were very composed and very well placed speak to me a little bit about your intentions in terms of your decision to to bring in these two different very two very different approaches Yeah, um, I think, again, it was a practical decision because um, I filmed my parents with a small camcorder and that was because it was the most immediate thing that I had, you know, that I could capture them with. Mm -hmm. And juxtapose that with the still static um, usually wide frames those were kind of set up pieces that I had time to you know put up a tripod and really look at the frame and um, set it up properly 
And I wanted to, yeah, depict the space and the weather and the atmosphere in a kind of a transcendental way. But then we come back to the camcorder stuff and that's handheld and personal and in some ways more emotional. Yeah, and and speaking about the the emotional undertone of the camcorder, there is also a profound emotionality within the soundscape. And you seem to have given a lot of attention to the landscape of sound. I mean, as I mean, as much as you did to the images, if not more. It, you seem, I mean, watching it, I felt engrossed by the language and the subtleties of the sound. And sometimes even the harshness of the sound when you filmed with this camcorder. Mm. Yeah, I, I really find sound and sound design like one of the most important aspects of film. I think it, it cuts to the emotion more viscerally than sometimes the image does. And because there's not a, a lot of dialogue in the film, I wanted, you know, the soundscape and all the textures of sound to create its own kind of dialogue. I mean, because I noticed that, I mean, you appear as yourself in the film, correct? Well, a, a version of myself, yeah. A version of yourself, yeah. So I noticed that in the images you were very reluctant to show your face. You were very reluctant reluctant to portray emotions on the face of the character, which was a very interesting choice. But I completely felt the emotions of this character or this figure, mainly through her surroundings, mainly through the soundscape and the 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 progression of time as she is working in this greenhouse and planting these seeds. And it's you could sort of feel the tensions within her, even though they were completely unaccessible in terms of like the visual indicators on her face, which I found really interesting. Do you think that the sound in the film is enough in order for, I mean, I personally felt like I was moved by it, but do you think it is enough um, in the film in order for the general viewer to climb into the world of the character? I think for me it is enough, but I think to the general audience it might be hard to grasp. Um, I think if I can, can compare it or try to look at another film that's possibly similar in form. Um, there's a film by Chantal Ackerman mm-hmm. called uh, Jean Dillman. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that film, all, I think all its subtle narrative points are made by the sound that the woman makes and it's such a, it feels like it's 
it's empty because there's there's not much dialogue, but if you listen to the sound and the repetitiveness of it, it describes a story. Completely, but it, it sort of demands uh, a certain kind of attention, a certain kind of openness. I mean, it demands the viewer to open up their ears, <laughs> so to speak. Um, which brings me to something I was wondering about. Yeah. So this year, considering the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, Visions du Réal, I mean, is obviously having the festival online. So obviously premiering this film online sort of has this implication that people will be watching your film on smaller screens and you also won't be able to control the sort of audio devices that they'll be using in order to watch your work. So I imagine, I mean, was that a difficult decision for you to make considering that your film with the soundscape and the magnitude of the images was very obviously designed to be projected in the intimate space of, you know, a cinema? On the one hand, I'm very, I'm very happy that it premiered online at Vision Story L. There wasn't really any other choice. I mean, unless unless I wanted to wait, you know, a year or however long. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. For theaters to open again. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I'm not entirely opposed to viewing films at home, um, as long as they have, you know. A decent setup like you described. It's interesting to me what Visions Durel did this year where they proposed for the filmmakers to make this what they're calling a carte blanche uh, where you sort of the idea is, is that the filmmaker would address the public and you know say something in reference to their work or a little visual anecdote and people I mean filmmakers have been really creative but I was really intrigued by your carte blanche, um, which almost felt like a piece in itself, to be honest. <laughs> um, yeah, so you, what's interesting is you stay true to the silent nature of your work. Um, there's no voice. And you use this quote by Albert Camus that I think is really appropriate for this time. <laughs> um uh, if I can quickly find it. I want to read it. Is that okay? Yeah. You quote Camus and he said, and then we realized that the separation was destined to continue. Hostile to the past, impatient of the present, and cheated of the future. Thus, the only way of escaping from the intolerable leisure was to set the trains running again in one's imagination. Yeah, well, that carte blanche piece was, yeah, a direct response to the current pandemic. Um, I think everyone else who was selected at Visions the Real made a proper introduction of their work, um, you know, explaining a little bit of how they came to the work and maybe bits of footage from it. But for some reason, even though it was only a few weeks ago, 
it was the only thing that I could make. It, it kind of felt wrong for me to like make something else that isn't responding to what's happening at the time, at right at this time. We realized the pandemic was very serious and, you know, people were dying and, you know, the death rate was getting higher and um, I guess I was just watching a lot of news at that time and I couldn't really think of anything else that was like almost the only thing I was thinking about and yeah I guess speaking more broadly films are a way for me to you know exercise or get out what I've been feeling and thinking yeah it's it's sort of like uh like referencing setting our our minds free through this train of imagination uh, is really what you're doing through your work in the light of tremendous existential like you know angst and and the fact that you know we're in this space where yes we can we have this healing ritual of work and we can work with concrete things and we can work in the monotony of our parents greenhouse whatever that looks like there is a certain amount of hope within the very act of your film's existence like the very act that you are constructing a film you are setting your mind free to run in this imagination train and i think that that is perhaps the hope that we have even in this time where we're we're very in touch with this nihilistic sort of world view that we're living in I just wanted to say thank you so much for your vulnerability and your openness and inviting me into this conversation with you. It's been it's been really cool. Yeah, thank you as well for your observations and um, interpretations of my work. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening and tune in to our next episode where we discuss Viktor Kosakovsky's latest work, Gunda which was also screened at New York Film Festival. This podcast was produced by Bandarei Productions, with music by Naim Makhboub in Stockholm and produced by Christina Zachariades in New York. And for more goodies, visit us online at docsinorbit.com and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for all the updates.